0: grab a Bible and turn to Matthew 10. Just before I begin, I want to thank each of you for your prayers, for your welcome, for your encouragement um, over the last year as I've continued to discern this call. And uh, I I just want to start by acknowledging that I am immensely grateful to each of you uh, and it is an honour and it is a joy to serve you. Uh, you make it joyful to, to serve you and to be part of this community. And I want to honor and thank you for that. Turn to Matthew 10. We're continuing through our series, The Radical Life. And we're asking, what might our lives look like if they are transformed by the teaching of Jesus for the sake of the world? And we concluded that life will look radical. And we're asking, what that radical life looks like. So let's recap to how we got here in Matthew 10. I want you to imagine that you are Matthew the tax collector who we read about in Matthew nine, just the chapter before. You were sat in your tax collector's booth one day and as usual, you were sat there levying taxes on your own people on behalf of a foreign government and adding a little bit extra for yourself. And as usual, you are feeling a little bit guilty, but as usual, you just pushed that feeling down because as usual, there were bills to pay and there were luxuries to enjoy. But completely out of the usual and the ordinary, this man, this rabbi comes up to you and he calls you by name. This righteous man calls you by name. And that night, Over dinner, he declares that he is the doctor who has come to heal the sin-sick soul. And you realised in that moment that your soul needs healing. That was the radical call that we looked at four weeks ago with Adam. And as you start to follow this man, Jesus Christ, around, you hear him teaching with an authority you have not heard before. And not only does he teach with an authority you haven't heard, he confirms it with the blind and the bleeding healed and the dead raised. And then he calls you and says, the harvest is plentiful. There's lots of this work to do, but the workers to do it are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more workers into the harvest field. And so you dutifully start to pray. That was the radical few three weeks ago with Lee. And then there comes the disconcerting moment when you realize that you are the answer to the prayers that you've been praying. And he gathers you, and you realize he's not just calling you to follow him, but also to follow his lead. And he gives you these words heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, if you love your family or community of origin more than me, you're not worthy of me. The time may come when you have to leave them behind. Take up your cross and follow me. And you know, he will take up his cross for the sake of you. That was the radical cost that we looked at last week and now we arrive at these words that follow straight after the radical cost our gospel reading for today we're reading from Matthew 10 verse 40 anyone who welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've seen that when the radically called become the radical few and pay the radical cost, what happens in this passage? They're prepared to receive a radical welcome, which is what we're looking at today, a radical welcome. And we're going to look at the radical welcome that they have received, a one-time event that has received them. And then we're going to talk about the radical welcome that they will receive. So let's start the radical welcome that we have received. Now, the context of this passage is that, as I said, it follows straight after the stuff to do with paying the cost. And the cost that Jesus mentions is that they will have to leave their families and their communities of origin behind. Now, of course, when we read that, we think, oh gosh, that's really hard. I'm you know, I I really like my wife. I've grown fond of her over the last few years. I really like my parents. I really like my community. It means a lot to me to be part of that friendship group, that club, that society. But in the context that Jesus spoke these words, that cost was a lot more than just, uh, oh, that's going to be hard. Because we live presently in a self-determined culture. You choose your job, You choose your spouse, you choose your community, you choose your interests, you choose your politics and before you know it, you've assembled for yourself an identity that you get to determine. It's your your call, what's in, what's out. Jesus's context was a community-determined identity. It was a received identity. Identity wasn't something that you chose and built for yourself, identity was who you were in your family where you were from, the job you inherited from your family. So listen to those words about the radical cost in that context. As we looked at last week, this was a removal of an old identity. But the radical identity removal of verses 38 and 39 is directly uh, followed by a radical welcome a radical new identity a new community that you're from whoever welcomes you welcomes me these were no longer men from Galilee these were men from God These were no longer men who were received or rejected on the basis of who their earthly father was. They were to be received or rejected on the basis of who their heavenly father was. No longer did their actions bring disdain or honour on their own name. Their actions brought disdain or honour on the very name of God. They have received a radical welcome into the family, the purpose, and the community of God. When Beth and I were on honeymoon in, uh, in Italy, we decided uh, one evening about 6.30 that we'd go and find some dinner. And so we walked into the local, uh, the local town and we went to uh, the, the best restaurant we could find on TripAdvisor and the, everyone was sat there in aprons and they were sort of sat outside having a glass of wine, smoking, the restaurant was deserted. And so I said to them, oh, hi, do you have a, a table for two? And the man looked at his watch And then he looked back up at me and he looked at his watch again. He said, two hours, two hours. (laughs) And and I I realised that we were a little bit early for dinner at 6.30 in Italy. And so Beth and I said, we'll go for a little walk. So we wandered around the the streets and we're thinking, should we find somewhere else to go maybe? And we we saw this lady who was wandering down and uh, and we said to her, are there any good restaurants around here that... um, that are not that one and she uh, and she said do you want dinner i said yeah yeah we're looking for dinner and she looked at her watch and she looked back at me and she looked at her watch and she said where are you from <laughs> and, uh, and we said we realized okay this is a cultural thing i said oh we're from england at which point her face lit up and she said liverpool <laughs> and uh, wanting to be polite I couldn't name any towns in northern Italy. So, um, so I said, oh, yeah, kind of, kind of. York. And she, her eyes brightened. And she said, follow me, follow me. And she led us through this little street and we went up this street and the streets got narrower and narrower. And then, she, uh, and then she unlocked her front door and she came into her house and she said, follow me. And she started going up these stairs and we went round onto the landing and she said, follow me. And we went up a second set of stairs until we got to a tiny room at the top of her house. And, and she led us in, she opened the door and in this, in this room, she said, look, and across an entire wall were the lyrics from John Lennon's Imagine. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, Liverpool, sing it. <laughs> and, I, uh, and I said, um, so York's actually quite far from Liverpool. <laughs> See, to her, we represented more than ourselves. We represented an entire city and indeed the musical heritage and history of one man, John Lennon. Something that we were not qualified to do. Something more had been attached to us in her mind. But we were not qualified for it. What qualifies these men of Galilee to become men of God. Well, it's not their moral character. A few weeks ago, you were sat in your tax collector's booth levying taxes on your own people on behalf of a foreign state. It was not their education or their learning. It was not their wisdom or their intellect, their gentleness or their kindness. The only thing that could possibly qualify these men just happened to be the only thing they had, the call of God on their life. The radical welcome that they had received. That was the only thing that qualified them and it's the only thing that they had. Now this is true for these men, but it's also true for each of us as we follow Jesus, we represent a new family, we represent a heavenly identity, you are no longer men and women from Newcastle or York or Liverpool, you are men and women from God No longer are you received or rejected on the basis of your earthly identity. You are received or rejected on the basis of who your heavenly father is. No longer do our actions bring honour or disdain on our name. But honour or disdain on the very name of God. We have received this radical welcome. We have been brought in to the purposes and the plans of God for the redemption of the world. We have received the radical welcome. That's the radical welcome they've received. Secondly, they will receive a radical welcome so we've looked at they have received now we're going to look at where they will receive a radical welcome the context of this passage is that it's in a section that's all about mission now this passage has some wider implications for us as a church community and we're going to go into that in a moment but let's focus on mission We're going to look at the principle that Jesus lays out and then three examples. So the principle is this, whoever welcomes you welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And then he gives three examples. Whoever welcomes, and they all follow exactly the same pattern, right? So whoever welcomes a prophet, a righteous person, a disciple, on the basis that they are a prophet, righteous person or disciple, will receive a reward and that's the that's the structure that this passage follows what's jesus saying here he's saying look for hearts that are prepared Look for hearts that have some inclination of something about the purpose of God. Because when they welcome you, when they receive your prophetic ministry, speaking the word of God, when they receive your righteousness ministry, living the word of God, when they receive your being a disciple-ness ministry, they receive the love of God, they're receiving your love of God's word, they receive something of Jesus. Himself. These are hearts that are already inspired to to love something of who God is. Jesus is saying, Jesus is not saying here, um, look for people who welcome you in spite of the fact that you're a Christian. Like we've all got friends like this haven't we you know it's like when they welcome you through the door they're like oh come in and like as soon as you're in they're like "Oops, shut the door don't let jesus in <laughs> and then like as soon as you start to bring up jesus in a conversation oh i was at church the other day on sunday they're like sunday town on a sunday yes yeah, so big. have you been to that really new good coffee shop it's just down there and they're like shut the conversation down straight away jesus is jesus is not saying in this passage that if they give you a cup of cold water that they're welcoming him that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are people who will welcome these men because of the fact that they're Christians, because of the fact that they're a prophet, because of the fact that they're living righteously. And the same is true of us. We have friends who will welcome us because when we speak, it's like we're speaking words of life into a situation that they wouldn't hear elsewhere. We have friends who will welcome something of our presence in a situation when it just feels broken and painful and difficult. We will have friends who will value something of the relationship with God that we have and they will ask questions about it. Jesus is saying, when you go out, Look for those people. Look for those people. They are prepared hearts. And what are they prepared for? Well, they're prepared for receiving a reward. Now, when we read the word reward in the Bible, we tend to get, I don't know about you, a little bit anxious about it. Reward? Is Jesus implying that there's like, you know, a good heaven and then a slightly better heaven and then an even nicer heaven and then right at the top, there's heaven with a wall of John Lennon's lyrics written. Imagine all over it. Is that, is that what he's saying? No. Our earthly conception of reward is obsessed with things. Jesus' heavenly conception of reward is obsessed with relationships. Jesus' conversation around reward in Matthew finds its fulfilment in these words that he speaks just before he goes to the cross in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the sheep of the goats. And this is the great reward that all of Matthew is kind of leading to. These words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, relationship. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. What's the great reward? It's being part of the kingdom of heaven. What's the great reward? It's a relationship with the Father. What is a prophet's reward? It's participating in the very life of God. That's what makes this this welcome radical, because when people receive these men and by extension when these men when people receive us on the basis that we represent the kingdom of God they are not just receiving us they're receiving the king who sent us that's what makes this welcome so radical i'd love to read us a story of what this looked like in the early church we're reading from acts 16 on the Sabbath day, we were outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman, the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. That means a Jew, not a Christian, but, but a, a Jew. What happened? The Lord opened her heart to our message. When she and her members of her household were baptised, she invited us into her home. What happens? She shows them hospitality. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Notice the parallels between these passages. In both, there's a prepared heart to receive the word of the Lord. In both, the hospitality is an exten- extension of that reception. What does this look like for us then? It's all well and good, but what does it look like for us? When we get out there tomorrow morning, when we are um, sharing our faith with our colleagues at work, when we are praying by ourselves on a Thursday afternoon, what does this actually look like? Well, we're going to look at this through um, our vision statement here, which is following Jesus, building community and loving Newcastle. Firstly, following Jesus. Well, this is a passage which, as I said, is all about mission. But when we read a passage all about mission, we remember that we were once on the other side of the story. We may read ourselves into Paul now, but we were once Lydia. We were once those whose hearts were prepared by God to receive his word. And I want us never to forget that because that is the basis of our salvation. That is, the, as, as I said earlier, what, the only thing that called these men to represent God was that God had called them. And it's the same that is true of us. The only basis on which we can receive our salvation is because God determined that our heart should receive his word. So that when the time came and someone spoke the word of God into our life, we received them, not just into our home, but the word of God into our heart. Do you know that that is the basis of your faith? Your faith is not a good idea that you once had. Your faith is not you just happen to be born in the right place. Your faith is not just a matter of a a cultural upbringing. Your faith is a gift from God and a work of God which is in your life. In the words of Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, he chose you to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you for adoption. Now, if that is true, which it is, it's also true for those who are here today and you're just exploring faith. You, maybe you're, you're completely new. Maybe you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian yet. The fact that you are here, that your heart seems to be stirred by something and you want to be here is a sign of God at work in your life. I want you to be encouraged by that. The second thing to say about following Jesus is that I, I think that we tend to get stuck quite a lot in the, what I might call the first half of the gospel. It goes something like this. Um, we become aware of the magnitude of what it is. We are called to bear the very name of God. And our instant thought is, I am not worthy. And that is, a, that is true. Okay, i have got to level with us. That is true as we said, there's nothing that could qualify us in an earthly sense that would make us worthy to bear something so great as the name of God. I had this moment on my retreat. um, I was reading those words that Ben read out to us at the beginning, and I was thinking, Lord, this is too high a calling. That I'm not worthy of this, and there's nothing I could do that would make me worthy of this. Perhaps you have those moments. I'm just not worthy to bear his name. I'm not worthy to offer him the worship that he should be offered. I'm I'm not worthy to help disciple this person who's a new believer and new to faith. It's only half the gospel. We are not worthy, but he is. We might not be worthy to bear his name, but his name is worthy to be born, and he's called us to bear it. So, guess what? He has the final say, and we bear his name. We may not be worthy in and of ourselves to, to offer the God of all the universe an eternal praise, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But guess what? He's worthy of that, and he's called us to offer it. So, therefore, we're going to offer it. Will you let him have the final say? Of course, in and of ourselves, we're not worthy to disciple that person who's new to faith. But guess what? He is worthy of that person's worship and discipleship. And he's called you and me, his church, to disciple them. So guess what? He has the final say. His word has the final say. And so we step into worship and we say, Lord, I am only here because you say so. I am only here because you are worthy. I'm discipling this person because I know that you are worthy. I'm bearing your name because you are oh, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, as we sung to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. Not worthy are the people of God, but worthy is the lamb who was slain. If you get stuck looking at your own unworthiness, look to Jesus' worthiness. Our lives as disciples are to be Jesus-obsessed. I'm obsessed by how worthy he is to be worshipped. I'm obsessed by how worthy he is to be proclaimed in this city. I'm obsessed by how worthy he he is to be known among the nations. Secondly, then, building community. As I said, this is a passage primarily about uh, mission, but it has a huge implication for us as a church. Because suppose that radical welcome that a prophet is going to receive is many years away. Suppose Alicia has got a radical welcome lined up in 15 years' time. They're going to move next to someone whose heart has been prepared for the message and they're going to receive her prophetic gifting. Suppose that Isaac has got a radical welcome lined up in 10 years time and they're going to receive his gifting of a righteous life and they're going to look to him for for wisdom and advice and presence in all sorts of situations but it's many years away and until that radical welcome comes they will probably receive a lot of radical rejection they'll receive people I don't want to hear what you have to say on this matter because it's about Jesus I don't want to I don't welcome your righteousness it just looks bigoted to me what's going to happen they're going to be beaten down six months of that, a year of that, they're going to be shattered. The church's job is to build each other up so that whatever happens in the week, whatever rejection we experience in the week, we honour each other in this place. I honour the prophetic gifting that the Lord has put on Alyssia's life. I honour the righteousness gifting that the Lord has put on Isaac's life. And we build each other up in love. That's why encouragement is called a spiritual gift in Romans 12. We've gone about all the other spiritual gifts. The spiritual gift of encouragement seems to be one that we don't talk about as much, but it is vital for the well-functioning of God's church. I'm pleased to say the spiritual gift of encouragement might not be talked about much. It is exercised. (laughs) You have been so encouraging to me. And I know you've been encouraging to others as well. But let's step into it more. Let's be more encouraging because it's it's encouraging each other in what God has put in us that will be received by the world and the message of Jesus will be known among the nations. Building community. Finally then, loving Newcastle. Here's my question. Do we view sharing our faith in this way? Do we view sharing our faith as there are hearts prepared to hear this? Or do we view sharing our faith as a, quite frankly, thankless task that only brings rejection? Have we got jaded? Do, you know, in our younger years, do we think, oh gosh, I've got to tell more people about Jesus. But now we're just thinking, i are just going to say no. I'm not even going to bother inviting them to church. It's just too much hard work. Yes, I'd like to see more people worship Jesus, but it's... They're probably going to say no anyway, so I'm not even going to try. Jesus' vision here and his promise here is that there will be people who receive him through you. Do you view mission in that way? Do you view your, your time and your work in that way with your children, with your family, when you're in hospital, when you're visiting the doctor, when you're on your way to work? There are hearts that are prepared to welcome, not just me, but the one who sent me. Because at the heart of this passage is the simple truth that Jesus is worthy to be welcomed. Jesus' name is worthy to be magnified and glorified. He who gave himself up so that we might be drawn in. Him who poured himself out so that we may be full. He who died that we may live. He is most worthy to be worshipped and praised. And he has prepared the hearts of those he has redeemed to receive him through his people. Let's stand and pray together.